0: Hello, my friend. How are you? Do you ever feel like things are just getting weirder and weirder every day? I mean, we're all excited about the Olympics right now, which is being held in a country known to have concentration camps, mass slavery, and other human rights violations that should have us all outraged at best, or at the very least, we should at least just be boycotting the event. I mean, remember 1980, we boycotted the Summer Olympics in Moscow to declare our disapproval of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. But now we're happily skiing and skating away in uh, China anyway, I think we should be pretty disgusted about the fact that we're participating in these Olympics, um, and asking ourselves, is this like just basically a tacit statement of, you know, shrugging our shoulders and saying, we don't like your genocide and whatnot, but the Olympics are about the majesty of sport, not politics, right? Either way, this has nothing to do with retirement planning or does it? So there's that we've got the Joe Rogan versus Neil Young thing versus Neil Young and other Canadian musicians that nobody under the age of 40 has ever heard of. Um, We've had that crazy cold snap in Texas. I mean, things are just weird. And speaking of weird, a couple days ago, there was a long article in the New York Times about MMT, or Modern Monetary Theory. The title was, Is This What Winning Looks Like? Modern Monetary Theory, The Buzziest Economic Idea in Decades, Got a Pandemic Tryout of Sorts. Now Inflation is Testing Its Limits. Now, I'm not going to do a deep dive into MMT, but I've been reading about it for a few years now, and I do want you to be aware of it because MMT practitioners like Stephanie Kelton, who this Times article is focused on are in Washington holding advisory roles, helping to shape economic policy. To me, it's frightening. So I'll put a link to this article in the show notes, and I'd recommend checking it out, especially if you've never heard of MMT. Uh, If you are familiar with MMT, it's not going to shed any light, really, to speak of. But first off, what the hell is modern monetary theory? Well, here's the definition from Investopedia. Modern Monetary Theory, MMT, is a heterodox macroeconomic framework that says monetarily sovereign countries like the US, UK, Japan, and Canada, which spend, tax, and borrow in a fiat currency that they fully control, are not operationally constrained by revenues when it comes to federal government spending. Okay. Okay. Uh, heterodox economics for those of you sitting in the back is basically an unorthodox school of economic thought basically outside of the mainstream so back to the investopedia definition put simply such governments do not rely on taxes or borrowing For spending, since they can print as much as they need and are the monopoly issuers of the currency. Since their budgets aren't like a regular household, their policies should not be shaped by fears of rising national debt. MMT challenges conventional beliefs about how the government interacts with the economy, the nature of money, the use of taxes, and the significance of budget deficits. These beliefs, critics say, are a hangover from the gold standard era and are no longer accurate, useful, or necessary. So basically, MMT is a school of thought that will defend deficit spending ad infinitum and advocate for items like universal health care, which the country can't afford because we can just print money to cover the costs. Sounds reasonable, right? Well, to me, it sounds insane. And it kind of is. Now, in this article, uh, here's one of my favorite lines. In the MMT view of the world, quote, how will you pay for it is a vapid policy question. Mm -hmm. Now, here's an absolute gem from the article. Quote, the good news, the government has had no trouble selling bonds to fund its spending, contrary to the direst projections of deficit scolds. Okay, why does the government have no trouble selling bonds? Well, because the Fed is buying them. Funny how the Times leaves out that detail. Most Times readers probably think that foreign governments are still out there clamoring to buy our negative-yielding, well, or at least in real terms, negative-yielding U.S. Treasuries. Or maybe they think it's predominantly wealth managers and pension funds uh, or the like. But whatever their readers think or don't think, it's predominantly our own Federal Reserve Bank doing the, quote, buying. But they fail to mention that. Anyway... I'm not going to bore you too much more with details from this article, but again, I'd recommend that you check it out just to see how people uh, think and how Stephanie Kelton dodges the elephant in the MMT room, which is the 7% uh, inflation level that we're sitting at right now. Oh, and I want to touch on one little item that MMT proponents use as a basis for their belief that you can deficit spend forever without issue, and that's the Japan argument. Uh, Every time I hear people talk about MMT, or pretty much every time... They argue that Japan has been deficit spending for decades now, and on paper, they're doing okay. Now, clearly, there's a lot more to it. And yes, the Japanese government issues bonds, and the Bank of Japan buys those bonds. So it is a similar look. But here's here's the big difference, or one of the big differences, between Japan and the U.S. Japan, with a couple like exception years, manages to run a trade surplus. In fact, in the last 50 plus years, they've only had trade deficits, and some of those are really small, for 10 total years. But the U.S., just look up our trade deficit. So not only are we selling debt to our central bank to fund the programs that we can't afford, but we're also seeing billions of dollars leave our shores To buy goods produced in other countries while far less money is coming back to buy stuff that we make Um, now to the mmt folks this is a sustainable model to me it's unsustainable or at least it feels unsustainable especially when you add like currently our crazy low workforce participation rate in the equation anyway that's a quick intro just to the concept of MMT, um, not, definitely not meant to be an exhaustive rundown, but I'll put a link to the New York Times article in the show notes just so you can see. And I think this Stephanie Kelton woman is kind of mildly insane. Uh, anyway, next up, Redfin just sent out their newly updated 2022 uh, real estate market forecast. And I want to share a couple interesting tidbits that I found in there. It starts out with this paragraph. Despite a dearth of homes for sale and the typical monthly mortgage payment reaching a new high, home buyers are eager to get their foot in the door before mortgage rates tick up further. Redfin economists expect the dynamics to shift around summertime when still higher home prices and rates cause buyers to take a step back. Okay, here's a bit more. Quote, even though the price of home buying has never been higher, Demand is only getting stronger, said Redfin Deputy Chief Economist Taylor Marr. Some of that demand may be a reflection of buyers' urgency to get ahead of rising rates, leaving a lot of uncertainty about how strong home sales will be in 2022. Nonetheless, the ongoing supply and demand imbalance is pushing home prices up and up because there are enough eager buyers to rapidly buy up nearly every home that hits the market. By this summer, higher prices and rates may cause buyers to pull back from the market. So their economists expect the 30-year fixed to rise steadily this year up to 3.9%, no surprise there. But based on that, they're looking for home prices, like your aggregate median price increases, to slow to 7% by December. Now that's down from 14% for last year. Um, There's a lot more information in this report. So if you want to take a look, I'll have a link in the show notes. Um, But real quick, if a drop to 7% growth sounds like real estate is becoming less lucrative of an investment, let's do a quick review of leverage and how that makes real estate one of the best investments you can make even in times of lower appreciation. So let's pretend you were going to buy a move-in ready house in say North Texas for let's say 200 grand. Okay. You'd be putting say 20% down and let's just pretend that with closing costs and other miscellaneous money you'd spend to get the tenant in place, you'd put a total of 50K into it or 25%. And remember you make money four ways on real estate, cash flow, mortgage pay down, tax savings from depreciation and appreciation of the value of the property over time of course you don't see that appreciation until you sell the property but you get a good feeling every month when you look on zillow and you see the value of your little investment growing so if this home that you just bought is just average and appreciates at seven percent that's seven percent of the purchase price so fourteen thousand dollars and recall You've only got 50k invested. So 14 grand is a 28% annual return. So with your cash flow, depreciation, and mortgage paydown, you're going to be well above 30% return and probably closer to 40 or more. And that is kick-ass ROI. And rents are not coming down. So it's going to keep going up. So if you hear about the declining rate of housing appreciation it's natural, it's normal, it's cyclical, it's structural, et cetera, et cetera. But if you buy right, and if you have a good property manager, as I know well, you'll come out way ahead. Anyway, uh, a link to that Redfin report is in the show notes. Uh, so check it out. Okay, next up, A quick word on Social Security. Did you get your notification that the new 2021 Social Security statements are up? Well, I got mine a couple of weeks ago, but since I'm self-employed and haven't filed my taxes yet for 2021, it's got my 2021 taxed Social Security earnings at zero. Which makes me wonder if I had a W-2 like normal job, would they have my earnings updated and placed into my statement by now just based on like the payroll deductions? Or for people with normal jobs, is that information also unavailable until they file? Um, I, I don't know. I guess I'll have to ask a friend of mine or someone who has a real job. Anyway, so why am I talking about this? Well, I got an interesting listener question this week from someone who didn't leave their name and their email address gives no indication of what their name is. So I'll just call them Dave. Dave wrote this. Hey Matt, I enjoy your podcast and I have a question about social security. I've been self-employed for most of my career and have quite a few years with little or no reported income as a lot of the work I do is paid in cash. That said, I've earned the required 40 work credits to qualify for benefits, but I'm wondering if I should either start reporting more of my income and pay more taxes to get my earnings record higher, or if I should try to get a real job for a while to increase my benefits. I never considered how taking earnings under the table would affect my social security benefits. And now I am a bit nervous. Okay, well, Dave, the bad news is uh, is that your social ben- your Social security benefits are gonna suck. Um, but the good news is you saved a lot of money in taxes over the course of your life by getting paid in cash. But this is another listener question that leaves out too many details for me to give a good answer. Like for example, how old are you, Dave? Are you married? Uh, did your wife work? Um, but I can not tell you this, working more or working harder with the goal of increasing your social security benefits is not easy and might not be the right approach. Uh, not financial advice here, but let me give you some example data. So this, I, I, I went on the ssa.gov site and you can, you can tweak these numbers all you want. It's easy. Anyone can do it. So all you have to do is plug in the numbers. Now I'm totally middle-class. I've had some good earning years. I've had some terrible earning years, but based on my personal SSA history, um, if I pop the numbers into the calculator, if I make an average salary of thirty, just 30K a year from now until I'm turned 70, and I'm gonna just assume that I'll be waiting until I am 70 before I take social security, just because I think I'm gonna live to be around 90, you can make your own calculation accordingly. Anyway, if I make only 30 grand a year until I'm 70 and don't take social security until I'm 70, they're gonna give me personally, around three grand a month for my benefits, okay? So you can see I'm, I am not a huge earner over the course of my lifetime. So let's say that three grand makes me nervous like Dave and I feel like I need to increase my reported income so that I'll be eligible for more social security. Well, let's say instead of 30K a year until I'm 70, I plug in 60K and double my income for the next 17 years. Uh, oh, but yeah, by the way, I'm 53. So by doubling my income, for the next 17 years, that added a whopping 227 bucks to my monthly benefit at age 70. Okay. Not impressive, not impressive at all. So this is my message to you, Dave, run the calculations and you'll realize that social security provides a terrible return on investment in cases like yours. If you had a real job all your life and you hadn't been paid under the table, you'd be doing a lot better, but trying to chase income with the goal of increasing your benefit is going to be an uphill battle. Again, not financial advice. Don't do what I say. See a professional. But in my opinion, you'd be far better served to work harder, work more hours, put more of that income into investments. I'm not advocating for continuing to be paid under the table because that's a no-no in the eyes of the IRS. But I'm saying that you're going to get better returns investing by yourself than you will by working more in hopes of improving your income and therefore your social security benefits. But either way, take some time, run those numbers yourself, go to ssa.gov, and you can play with the calculators and get those real numbers. Okay. That's it for today. But before I go, um, I would just want to ask you a quick favor. If you would be willing to give this podcast a positive review, I would really appreciate it because reviews are what helps me get found. So, wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's Spotify or Apple or whatever, it's generally pretty easy to leave a five star review and maybe a couple positive words would be great too. I'd really appreciate it if you had my back. And, like I say, it'll help other people to find the show. Okay. Thanks so much. Have a great week. Nothing in this podcast is meant to be financial, legal, or tax advice. Though there's some kick-ass information here, it's for informational purposes only. Take control of your retirement planning, but get professional counsel if you need tax, legal, or financial advice. For more content like this, join my mailing list at rogueretirementlounge.com. And if you have questions about retirement investing, entrepreneurship, business, or anything else, my email address is matt at rogueretirementlounge.com.